Please turn with me in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 11. Coming down the home stretch in our months long study of the book of Ecclesiastes. This morning we'll be looking at chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. This is God's word. It is without error. It is powerful. It'll change your life. Please give it your full attention. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. One of my favorite memories from when I was a child is when my family and some friends would make a trip in the summer to Conneaut Lake Amusement Park in western Pennsylvania. It was an old school amusement park and it had one of those old fun houses if you've never experienced that. It's one of the familiar tortures for anybody in the over 40 crowd. It was a it was a building, a nondescript building, but inside the building it was full of a maze, basically a long set of, uh, of hallways, pitch dark hallways, and the idea was to make your way through this dark maze all the way to the end. But while you're working your way through the maze in the darkness, strange creatures would pop out at you suddenly and scare the living daylights out of you. Or the floor beneath you would start to shift while you're trying to walk across there. You'd walk into a room and it would be slanted and you'd have trouble getting to the other side. Or you'd get a big burst of air in your face to scare you. Well, I, at that time, I was, this particular time I'm thinking about, I was four years younger than my brother and so if you know family dynamics, four years difference between siblings mean that you're not a buddy to your brother, you're an annoying pest, and that's uh, who I was to my brother. And so when we'd get to Conneaut Lake, he would always ditch me and as he'd run off with his friends to the park. And, but one day, he actually asked me if I wanted to go to the fun house with him and his friends. And I was thrilled. I thought, this is great. He's including me. He's never done this before. What I didn't realize is that his plan was to use me as a human shield while he and his friends tried to get through the funhouse as quickly as possible. And so his plan in this, in this competition was to put me in front of him like a bumper, slam my face into the wall, he knew it was time to turn. It was quite effective and I think he did win. Well, that traumatic experience has become a metaphor to me of what life is like in a dark world under the sun. We are sinners, among other sinners, and without the Lord, we grope around in the darkness, lost. 
looking for the way out, often being pushed around by other sinners with their own selfish agenda. Life is full of darkness and uncertainty under the sun. The fear of the unknown is one of the most powerful fears that we face. They once did a science experiment where they connected electrodes to two groups of people and the electrodes were put in place in order to, to give just a, a, a small, slightly painful, but a small and ultimately harmless shock. And so to one group of people, the shock would be given every time, every time they would get a shock. To the other group of people, they got a shock half the time. And they measured the stress level in both groups. You would think that the group who knew they were going to get a shock every time when the button was pushed, they would be the ones with the most stress, but it was actually the opposite. It was those who didn't know when that pushing of the button was going to render a shock. They're the ones who got really stressed out. That's because as human beings, we don't like uncertainty. We'd rather have certain pain than the uncertainty of when pain is going to come. We're looking in the book of Ecclesiastes again. We're looking at a worldview that is limited to what you can see and understand and experience under the sun. The believer who writes the book is writing in the person of what we've called the professor. This professor is a character who embodies this worldly materialistic worldview where he only knows what he can know by observing things by his physical senses. He's by, the, the believer who writes the book is trying to give us a sense of what it's like to live without any word from God, without knowing what God is doing, living in the dark under the sun without revelation. That's what the writer of the book is trying to get us to understand, to put ourselves in the shoes of a true materialist who can only know by physical means. And what he is affirmed over and over again, and he especially focuses upon here in chapter 11, is that life under the sun, life as we observe it in the material world, is full of uncertainty, full of unpredictability, full of chaos, and often full of injustice. And as a result, that's why he keeps saying over and over, all is meaningless. Vanity of vanity, all is vanity. And he says that this is really hard for people like you and me because we hate uncertainty. We hate chaos. But we don't know what God is doing. The professor, the character who's expressing himself in most of the book, he believes in God. He knows that God exists. Like anybody should be able to look at creation and say, yes, there's a powerful God there, a God who's involved in creation. But without God speaking, without God revealing truth to us, we can't possibly know what he's doing. That's what he said back in chapter 8. In verse 17, he says, I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. God exists. God is sovereign. We've seen this over and over throughout the book. God exists and he's sovereign in this worldview. But God is remote. God is working in creation, but we don't know what he's doing because God has not spoken. 
in that worldview under the sun with those limitations. And we are in the dark. Four times, I read six verses to you, and four times in those six verses, the professor says, I don't know, you don't know, you don't know, you don't know. We live without knowledge. We live in uncertainty under the sun. So how do we face it? What the professor does is he gives, this, in this whole section, at the end of the book, he's giving advice, recommendation. If that's your worldview, here's how you should live. And, and the advice he gives in face of the uncertainties and chaos of life is what he, he gives us in these six verses. There's a lot of truth here, as far as it goes. It's what I would call common grace wisdom. Wisdom that's available to anybody, doesn't matter what religion, what philosophy, whether you're a materialist or a pagan, whatever you might be, this wisdom is something that you gain, again, the professor only knows what he can observe. And so by observing the world under the sun, this is what he says, here's the wise way to live. Again, he says wisdom is good. Here's the wise way to live. He says, first of all, accept the uncertainty. Accept it. Stop trying to manage it. Stop trying to control it. Because it's one thing to live with uncertainty about the future, but it's so much more frustrating to control something you can't control about the future. So accept the uncertainty. Submit to it. In verse 1, this is a verse I'm sure you've heard quoted before, but I know I always struggle to say, what are many days? Why does he want us to throw our bread in the water, and why would we want the bread after it's been in the water, soggy after many days? Well, some interpreters are just, think this is just a, a figurative way of saying give. It's wise to be a giver under the sun. And so give your bread. Give it. Give it often. Give it in many places. That's why they'll look at verse 2 and they'll say when it says give a portion to seven or even to eight. So you'll give to many people. Don't just give to a few. Give to many. It's kind of a pay it forward idea. If you give your possessions to others, there's some reward that will come back to you someday. That's how some interpret it. Some that even want to view it from a kind of a, that they don't, under, they don't see it as a under the sun perspective. They try to see it from a Christian point of view and they'll tie it to what Jesus said in Luke 6.38 where he says, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. But it doesn't fit the context of the book of Ecclesiastes. For one thing, in Ecclesiastes, you won't find any other verse that tells people to give under the sun, that giving is a wise way to live under the sun. It's not taught anywhere else in Ecclesiastes. So if that's what he's saying, it would be unique here. But what's interesting is the word cast, if you study the Hebrew language, what they'll tell you is that the words used for cast there actually means send. It's a better translation would be send. And most interpreters lately, at least, has tended to see this not as a commendation to give, but an accommodation to invest. Send your bread upon the waters. And actually, there's actually other places, another place in scripture where it actually uses that as the idea of putting your, your harvest, your food harvest on the ship and put it out to sea to a, different, to a foreign market. It was, that that's what this is alluding to. And I, I've become convinced that in the, in the book of Ecclesiastes, it certainly fits the context better. He's saying it's wise, after you've worked hard, you've produced a harvest, take your harvest, take your grain, put it on ships, send it out to sea to a foreign market, and eventually the reward will come back to you. 
it's, a, it's a, an encouragement, an exhortation to invest and to invest well. That's a risky thing to do. I mean, you think about investing today, investing today, especially in the last few months, has really been risky around here. But think about putting your whole harvest on ships, sending it to foreign markets. That ship could run into a storm. It could sink. They could lose all your, all your harvest uh, overboard. They, they could have pirates could board the ship and steal your harvest. You know, there's many risks involved, and the reward would not come back for a long time. But still, what the professor is saying is take the risk. That's the wise way to live under the sun. Invest. Not only work hard, but ten, verse, verse 2 would then talk about diversity or diversification. It says, give a portion to seven or even to eight. Don't put all your cargo on one ship. <laughs> if that ship sinks, you've lost everything. Put your cargo on four ships or seven ships or eight ships. So that at least maybe some of those ships will make it to port and you'll get back some profit from your harvest. Or as we would say today, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Any good financial counselor will tell you to diversify your investments. This is wisdom, again, common grace wisdom. You don't have to be a Christian to know this. Many non-Christians know this. Invest wisely and diversify your investments. Don't put all your money in one stock. Don't even put all your money in one mutual fund. Diversify your investments in the stock market. Buy land, buy precious metals, buy bonds, whatever it means, but diversify your investments. It's wise, it's a wise way to live under the sun. Why, look at what his reason is. Why invest and why diversify? The reason is at the end of verse two, for you do not know what disaster may happen on earth. It's because of this pessimistic, under-the-sun perspective he has. Life is chaotic. Life is uncertain. Hardships come. We face injustice. And in the end, we die. So diversify, invest and diversify because you don't know what tragedies are going to come. And then he actually talks about two of those possible tragedies or blessings in verses 3 and 4. He says, he talks about clouds. He says, saturated clouds are going to bring storms, whether you like it or not. Trees are going to fall, whether you like it or not. And we don't know when the storm's going to come. We don't control the weather. We don't know if that storm's going to come at a good time when we need, you know, before the harvest, when we need, in a time of drought, we need rain in order to, to produce the harvest. Or could the storm come in the middle of the harvest and destroy our crops? In one case, it's a blessing. In the other case, it's a tragedy. And we don't control it. And we don't know the future. What about the tree? He says the tree could fall to the left or the tree could fall to the right. The tree could fall in your house or it could fall in your yard and you cut it up for firewood to get you through the winter. But you don't control it. You don't know what disaster may come, he says. You know, I like to follow the weather. I like to try to predict the weather. People in the office always ask me, what's, gonna what's the weather for tomorrow? Because I'm always trying to check it out. I'm the one person, that's just one of my hobbies. I like to follow the weather. But I never can control it. If they come to me and say, hey, could you make a sunny day on Thursday because we're having a picnic Thursday night? I'd say, sorry, I don't control the weather. Isn't that really the lesson of the weather every day? You see what God is doing, but you don't know when, you don't know how, you don't know why. That's all that the professor is observing. The weather is a daily lesson for us 
that affects our lives tremendously, but we don't control it. It's an uncertainty. Well, then in verse 5, he talks about another aspect of life that is outside of our control. In verse 5, he says, As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. It's one of the great mysteries of life. How deeply, how, how much greater our understanding is in the last few generations of the human gestation process. How the embryo develops in the womb. We know a lot about it, but we don't control it. And we don't know why. There's a lot of mystery. Why do those spell, the cells separate the way they do? Why do they duplicate? Why do they replicate the way they do? We don't understand. God is doing it, but we don't control it. And I can't pass by this verse without pointing out it is a clear statement from an under-the-sun perspective that recognizes God as a creator, God created us, and it's recognizing that this bones and spirit that's being formed in the womb is a child. Did you notice that? It's a child. God is putting physical body and soul together in the womb to form a child. A child that should be afforded all the protection and right to life that any human being made in the image of God should have from conception to death. But we don't control it. And I know there are many different motivations for killing a child in the womb, I've heard about, but I hazard to guess that a majority of the time it's, a try, it's an attempt to try to control the future. The child was unexpected, the child is seen as not a blessing but a tragedy, and the abortion is an attempt to control the future. But anyway, aside from all that, that's not really the point that the professor is making here. He's saying, we don't control the weather, we don't control the trees that fall, we don't control the gestation process. God does these things, and we don't know what he's doing. We live in the dark. How then should we live? Well, we've already made the one point, we should live boldly. We should work hard, we should invest, we should take risks and live boldly because we don't know the future. Send your bread upon the waters. Give a portion to seven or eight. I have to give you an aside here. Uh, one of our members, Ori Barron, uh, was here in the first service, and he was in the financial department, the accounting department over at the university. And he, he told me after the first sermon, he said, there's something interesting about what you said. He said, you know that according to the experts in the financial uh, advisement field, they say that diversifying into seven or eight sources is probably the ideal, which I thought was interesting. I don't know. I'm not, you know, if you dispute that, talk to Ori. Don't talk to me. But I thought, you know, it's just interesting that that's in his field. That's what they say is about an ideal amount of diversification. But, you know, invest. Take risks. I think what the professor is saying here is something that we know from experience as well is that we were created to be entrepreneurs. We were created to be productive. And part of stewardship is being willing to take risks in order to be productive. God provides things for us. God provides for us through our work. And then the fruit of our labor, we are to be good stewards of that. And part of being a good steward is to be willing to take risks, to be an entrepreneur, to invest wisely, to increase what we've been given and what we've worked to, the Lord has given us the ability to work to provide. 
It's interesting, it even shows up in the parables that Jesus told. You remember Jesus told a parable about one man who is given um, five talents, another man is given two talents. The man who was given five talents duplicated it, made, he earned ten talents. The man given two talents turned it into four talents by investing and producing. And they were both commended and rewarded for being faithful. But there was the one man who was given one talent. Seems like the master had some insight there. He gave only one talent. What did he do with it? He buried it. Why did he bury it? He says it explicitly in the text. Because of fear. And Jesus is making the point. Now, he's making a much more deep spiritual point, but at least he's making the point that we are not to live under the sun in fear. Don't be so risk-averse that you do not produce. You do not fulfill your purpose on earth by producing, working hard, and investing well and being a steward of what you've been given. Again, this is common grace. Don't have to be a Christian to believe this or understand it. The world's way of putting it is nothing ventured, nothing gained. Derek Kidner says, if there's risk in everything, it's better to fail in living boldly than in living safely, hugging one's resources. I'm going to give you a little aside here again. I'm not going to in any way allude to what's right or wrong about wearing a mask during a pandemic. I'm not, I've carefully not taken sides on that. For, for a couple years now, and I'm not going to get into it this morning. What's the right or wrong thing to do? As my wife looks at me with her mask on. <laughs> you decide what you want to do. But I'm worried about a, a, an undercurrent that this whole pandemic has revealed, is that we are a people without hope. We are a people who live too much in fear. Now, again, I'm not opposed to wearing masks. I've worn them. I'm just saying that we live in a culture that is paralyzed by fear. You don't live the kind of life. Again, this is common grace wisdom coming from the professor. And he says, live boldly. Yes, there are reasonable risks, you know, protections against risk to take. But God does not expect us to find our security and safety and hope in the material things of this world. Even the professor recognizes that. We can't let fear, just like the man who was given one talent, we can't let fear paralyze us and hide from the risks out there in the world. Now, I don't know if that, you're talking about a pandemic, or you're talking about a degree, you're talking about an aspect of your job or a marriage or whatever it might be. He expects us to live boldly. We are created to make a difference, not hide in fear. So, we are to invest, to live boldly, to be entrepreneurs. Secondly, work diligently no matter what comes. Work diligently no matter what comes. Verses 4 and 6, he says, He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not which will, know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Don't concern yourself about the storms that are going to come. Don't wait. Don't, don't say, okay, I'm going to wait until three weeks from today when it's supposed to be a perfectly sunny day with no rain so that I can go out and plant my seed. Say, no, plant your seed. You know, be wise, but plant your seed. Plant, cultivate, and harvest. I don't know what that looks like in your calling. This is written in agricultural terms. But what does 
planting and, and cultivating and harvesting look like in your calling, in your job, in your life, wherever you're at, whether you're a, a child or a, a college student or a, a, a worker in the workplace, a retired person. What does it mean for you to plant, cultivate, and harvest? He says, you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Maybe half your efforts will be fruitful. Maybe all your efforts will be fruitful. Maybe none of your efforts will be fruitful. You don't control the outcome. You just be faithful. Plant your seed. Wayne Gretzky is famous for the uh, phrase, he said, you will miss 100% of the shots you don't take. That sounds simple, but can be really profound. I remember this, it wasn't new. I don't know why Wayne Gretzky gets the credit for it, because my coach said the same thing in high school. When I played, when I played basketball, he said, he said, you do not score if you do not shoot. Or in baseball, he said, if you don't swing the bat, you will never get a hit. It's that same idea. This is really all the professor's saying, common grace wisdom. It's what we used to call the Puritan work ethic. How many times has the professor said, in light of all the uncertainty and injustices and you know, dangers and everything out there in the world, how often has he said, work hard? Eat your bread, drink your wine, work hard. Here he adds that another element, invest. Be a good steward of whatever you earn, whatever you produce. Be a good steward, invest it well, be an entrepreneur. He says all that. The bottom line is, just be faithful. Just work hard today. Don't let fear about what may happen in the future keep you from doing what you should do today to live a fulfilling life. It's what Jeremiah, remember what Jeremiah told the exiles when they got into very unfavorable circumstances. They were taken away as exiles into Babylon and Jeremiah took the word of the Lord to them. What the Lord said to them? The Lord said, build homes, plant gardens, raise children, marry off your children, marry off your grandchildren. Live your life quietly and faithfully. Paul said to the Thessalonian Christians in 1 Thessalonians 4, we urge you to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. This is just wisdom. I agree with everything that the professor says here. But praise God it's not the whole story. Praise God... We are not limited to what we can observe under the sun. Praise God that he has spoken to us. And we do have revelation from the one who created us about not just how to live, the way to go, but about our future. The professor doesn't allow for that. In his worldview, he does not allow the view from above the sun to come in. But it goes back to what we said back in chapter 9. Remember back then, two weeks ago, we looked at that passage where it's, the professor says, we are in the hand of God. He didn't know what the hand of God was doing, but he acknowledged that everyone's in the hand of God. And we said at the time, the most important question in the universe then is, is God for you or is God against you? If you're in the hand of God, and everyone is, then you better know whether God is for you or against you. And that's what we have from the Word of God. This book is given to us to say, here is the way to know that God is for you, even as you live under the sun in the darkness. This is the light of the gospel, is that God has provided a way for him to be for us through his son, Jesus Christ. 
We have such a great advantage over the limited perspective that the professor has because we know the future. We don't know the details. There's a lot of things about the future we'd like to know, but we know what we need to know. Everything we need to know to live joyfully, contentedly, with peace and with hope is given to us in the word of God. And so Paul, when he gives similar advice, I want you to notice how similar this advice is that Paul gives in Ephesians 5. Just notice what's slightly different, but importantly different about it. Paul says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. We can know what the will of the Lord is. That's what the word of God gives us. God's will. All that we need to know about God's will, the light that we need in the midst of our darkness and uncertainty is given to us in his word. It is sufficient for faith, life, and every aspect of life. I often have people coming to me with their dilemmas. They're graduating from high school. They're graduating from college. They're thinking about getting married. They're trying to figure out whether they should take this job or that job. You know what? One piece of advice, everybody's situation is different, but one piece of advice I give to everyone who comes to me with those kind of dilemmas. I say, put your focus, first of all, on God's revealed will. Put your focus here. Be faithful to what he has revealed about his will for your life and his word. I know it's not specific about who you're supposed to marry. I know it's not specific about what job you should take. But if you live by these principles, God will guide you. God will bless you. God will give you the wisdom in his time. But just focus on his revealed will. And trust God for your future. He's given us what we need. And that brings me to the last point. The most important thing that we have that the professor didn't have in his under the sun perspective is that we are given the certainty about our futures that we need to know to live well today. No matter how many uncertainties and dangers we face in this life under the sun, there are two absolute certainties that we have according to the word of God, according to what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15. The first certainty we have is something that happened in the past. As Paul says, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried according to the scriptures. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Because of the certainty of Christ dying in our place, paying the penalty for our sins, we know that our sins are forgiven and that when God looks at us, he sees not sinners under his wrath deserving of eternal condemnation, but he sees us robed in the righteousness of Christ, his children adopted by grace, we are accepted by God. We are reconciled to God because Christ died for our sins, was buried and raised on the third day. The second certainty we have is about the future. This Jesus Christ, who was raised from the dead, is seated on the throne and he is coming back to complete our salvation. To deliver us finally from sin and suffering and death. We are certain about that. Death will be swallowed up in victory, we read in 1 Corinthians 15. We will all be changed at the last trumpet. And we live with that. We don't control the storms, speaking of it. We don't control the birth process. We don't control the tragedies, the deaths in our lives, the problems we face, the broken relationships. We don't control so much. 
but we know what we need to know from the Word of God. Faith, we live by faith and not by sight. The most important things about our lives we know by faith and not by sight. The professor can only operate by, on the basis of sight. But we know by faith that the Word of God is true and Jesus is who the Word of God says He is. And He's done for us what the Word of God says He's done. We live boldly. We work diligently. We invest wisely. And we don't know what the outcome is going to be in our, this life, but we know that we are storing up treasure in heaven as we live according to the revealed Word of God. We know that Jesus is risen, He is Lord, and He is coming again. And that makes a difference to every day of our life. After teaching on the resurrection and the second coming of Christ in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul ends with this statement. It's interesting. He's giving this glory, glorious eschatological vision of the return of Christ, but it's interesting how much he nails down the daily application in the last verse of 1 Corinthians 15. This is what he says. Therefore, my bro beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Why? Because Jesus died for our sins, was buried, raised on the third day, ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he's coming again. Because of that, you know that no matter what you do in this uncertain world, it is not in vain. I was in one of those situations early in my ministry where I was in, pastoring my first church as a young man, mostly incompetent at what I was doing and really wondering whether I should stay there or go somewhere where I could be more effective in ministry. And, and that whole year, I was just paralyzed by my fears, paralyzed by the risks. And I did what we all tend to do in those big decisions of life. I made the pros and cons list, you know, the list of advantages of going, the advantages of staying, and the downside of going, and the downside of staying. And I had this long, long list of factors that I had to consider about whether I should make the decision to go to another church or stay where I was. And I was so upset about it, and I went to a good friend of mine, I sat on his porch, and I said to him, please, could you look at this list, this pros and cons list for me, and could you, you know, as objective, maybe you can see something I'm not seeing, you know, maybe you can tell me what I, the decision I should make, should I stay or should I go? Should I stay in Pennsylvania or should I go to Kansas? He, he glanced at it for about five seconds and started laughing. I said, you're laughing at my pain here. What are you doing laughing at me? This is serious stuff. It's my life we're talking about. And he said, Dan, God doesn't care about your geographical location. He cares about your faithfulness. And I know you can nuance that and qualify that all you want, but his point was extremely valid. You can be faithful in Pennsylvania. You can be faithful in Kansas. Either way, you know for certain God's going to bless you for your faithfulness. You can sow your seed in Pennsylvania. You can sow your seed in Kansas. Or maybe a little more relevantly, I could say, you can sow your seed in State College or you can sow your seed in Belfont. But God is going to bless you if you faithfully sow your seed. Because that's one thing he's promised. There's one other thing I haven't mentioned that we can be sure about. And this is a promise that you find in Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11, where God himself says, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. If your life 
If your family, if your congregation is faithful in sowing the seed of the word, the word of God, the promise from revealed to us from on high is that God will bless the ministry of the word. Too many churches today have forgotten that. The only assurance we have in personal ministry or church ministry is if you are faithful in declaring and sowing the word of God, God will bless that. That doesn't mean you're going to have a huge congregation necessarily. It might. God might use the word to bring condemnation upon the enemies of the kingdom or whatever. He's, but he's, it will accomplish what he intends it to accomplish. He's promised that. That's a certainty in this dark world. Work hard. Enjoy the fruit of your labor. Invest wisely. Be productive. But trust every day that the word of God is true. Jesus is who he claimed to be. He accomplished what he claimed to accomplish. You are saved by grace. And you are destined for the eternal kingdom of glory. Because of what Christ has done for you. Let's pray. Father, this is a dark, difficult world, and we get our faces slammed into walls quite a bit, and sometimes it's other sinners pushing us into them, but Lord, you are faithful. We don't know the way out. We don't know what the future holds. We don't know if we have another day, another year, another decade, or even another second, but Lord, we are in your hand. And you have spoken, you have revealed to us your son, and because of what he's done for us, we know that as we are in your hand, all things work together for our good, as you've given us a love for Christ. We are his people, he is for us. Thank you, Lord, for revealing that to us by your word. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.